The Being an Engineer podcast is a repository for industry knowledge and a tool through which engineers learn about and connect with relevant companies, technologies, people, resources, and opportunities. Enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to the Being an Engineer podcast. Our guest today is Les Voss, who is a mechanical engineer currently working at the Vision Care Division of Johnson & Johnson. Les has spent his career developing manufacturing and automation machinery. And as you read through his background and experience, you start to get the sense that he is one of those engineers who really understands engineering first principles and how to use them uh, in practice. So I'm super excited to talk uh, with you today, Les. Uh, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Glad to be here. All right. So uh, first first question here, what was it about engineering that kind of in your, in your formative years spoke to you and convinced you that this is the profession for you? Uh, as a youngster, I like to uh, build things, do things, very curious about how things worked. I think you've heard this from a lot of engineers about taking things apart and trying to put them back together. Yeah. And, uh, With varied results. I was also an artist and a writer. So oh, interesting. very creative. And I thought that I wanted to be an artist for a long time. So I think that's an important part that a lot of people miss is the creativity part of engineering is something that everyone isn't focused on. So as a kid, when your kid is very interested in art and creating things, that's just as much a sign of engineering as taking things apart and putting them together. That's really interesting. What what kind of art were you into as a kid? It started out doing cartooning, and I and I had a couple of jobs in high school doing cartoons for a local uh, weight weight room, weight shop, whatever for their advertisements, and I did some a lot of caricatures of people, and then down the road I did more realistic art of dogs in particular for people just creative stuff yeah nice do you still do any art i do um not as much as i used to my daughter is really into art and okay. she's certain that she needs to be an artist and i keep leaning out <laughs> her a little bit here and there trying to say <laughs> that creativity isn't just about art honey yeah yeah and engineering might pay better <laughs> <laughs> that's that's right it's capitalist society right yeah right Okay. Um, you worked for, for BIC early on in your career designing pen assembly equipment. Um, uh, BIC is, I mean, that's a big company that's been around for a long time. Was there ever a point when, when you were like, uh, I don't know, standing on the factory floor and thought to yourself, wow, I work at BIC, one of the world's leading manufacturers. I am a legit engineer. Like this is really happening. Yeah. Yeah. You know what? I, I, I passed an income threshold while I was at BIC. And it really blew my mind. Wow, I'm making, and I don't remember what that money was at this point, but I've made it. I'm, I'm making that kind of money that's really amazing. So I'm finally an engineer. Yeah. yeah. It took a while to get there. But yeah, and I, I still kind of felt like a junior engineer at that point. I was getting a, a lot of feedback from people that were tool makers and senior design kinds of engineers, folks that knew a lot more about the details than I had learned at that point. In fact, I didn't even realize the depth of learning that I had left to do, but I was still making some pretty interesting machines at that point. The, the term junior engineers and senior engineers have always been interesting to me because it, it, it feels like at a lot of companies I've seen, there are kids with the titles of senior engineer. You know, they, they've been in the field for, I don't know, five years or something. And not to say that there aren't these prodigies out there who after five years legitimately can be considered a senior engineer. But I, I feel like, you know, senior engineer, you, you need to put in 10, 15 years to, to really earn that title. Um in your experience, how long does an engineer need to hone his or her craft before you can legitimately say, yeah, I'm a senior level engineer? So I'm not, I'm not certain that promotion level and capability level are always aligned. So just because you have a title that says you're a senior engineer or a staff or whatever, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're working at a capability well beyond some engineers that are in other companies. In fact, in lots of companies, they don't have all those levels. 
It's really all about what you can contribute. So when I'm saying senior engineer or junior engineer, there wasn't a junior engineer title, but I worked under engineers that knew a lot more than I did, and I learned a lot from them. So I guess I was more of a protege at that point, and they were more of the mentors. Now I'm acting more as a mentor, and I have a lot more protégés than I am a protege for, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. And and that's a good segue into this next question I have for you. You have kind of your own unique take on uh, what type of individuals make the best engineers. Can you share a little bit about, you know, that, that type of personality that you think makes the best engineer? So the most important attribute of an engineer is intellectual curiosity. Somebody that just wonders. They don't know an answer and they can't stand it. They've got to be on the internet finding out why. And if they can't find out on the internet why, they're often in their garage or somewhere else finding out why. People that have really widely varied hobbies, things like uh, automotive is interesting to many many mechanical engineers, but you'll find them being audiophiles and you'll also find them in photography and farming and plumbing and all of these different areas because everything is interesting to somebody that has intellectual curiosity. People that know a lot about a lot of things, those people make good engineers because most everything's been developed before. We just have to figure out how to get it to work in our current application. So if you've got a widely varied touch across many different things, you'll see ways to do things that other people won't. Do you think that that intellectual curiosity is just an innate talent that one has or doesn't have, or is it something that, that can be developed? I think it's a habit that you can develop. I think you can start out maybe, maybe, maybe some folks start out with that naturally. They're just curious. But I think, um, for example, uh, one of the things that I like to do is I get the ASME uh, often emails, and I go and I, I link on their uh, stories. And then I go down the rabbit hole. I don't just read what they're sending. I follow on and I look into, well, okay, 3D printing, that's interesting. But what about the different materials and the different methods? And what are the tolerances? And how close can we get with what methods? And who does these methods? And how can I use those in my solutions? And will it save us money? All those kinds of questions. Go down the rabbit hole and just dig in and make that a habit. Do it once a day or three times a week. Find a half an hour and understand something you didn't know. Yeah, I I like your comment about, you know, do it once a day for 30 minutes or whatever it is. I've, I've recently been reading about Kaizen and how it's this this methodology for small incremental but continued improvement. And so trying to develop a new habit, whether it's developing that intellectual curiosity or playing the guitar, you don't need to jump in and spend hours every day. Um, in fact, that might be more likely to to uh, uh, dissuade you from continuing that, that approach. Um, you can start really small. Just do something uh, in Kaizen. They talk about almost ridiculously small, right? Like laughably small. Do, do one little thing. Spend one minute being curious about something. Uh, but do that continuously each day and over time you you start developing these habits and and uh um it makes a big difference over time right i think you find people that are good at trivial pursuit and other things like that to probably be good engineers interesting well you you also have some strong feelings about continuing education uh for engineers in particular what what problems have you seen uh, when engineers stop learning and, and what suggestions can you share about how engineers might continue their educations throughout their careers? There's almost two pieces to that. The, the first piece is when I get young engineers out of school, most of them think they've checked the box and now they're going to start doing their career. But the reality is that school was just the first bit of their engineering training. And all of those classes, each one of them is a tool in their toolbox. And you can't pass the class and say, done, forget about it. It actually becomes part of what you are. So later on, when you're trying to understand the Venturi effect and how it works and whether or not it matters, you can pull out the thermo book and you can flip over to it and say, yeah, here it is. This is that tool. 
or when you want to know how compressed compressing a gas can make a super cooled liquid, you know that fluid dynamics will get you there. So you pull out that tool. So I always tell the very first thing I tell all of the engineers is do not put your books away. Find ways in every day to, to pull out a book or pull off something off the net and write down the equation of why it works. Because if you don't do it, you're going to forget it. And in five years, it's going to be awfully hard to back up and start getting those tools again. So that, that's kind of the first bit. And okay. then the second bit is when you come out of school, you don't know what you need to know to do an engineer's job. They haven't taught you how to, for example, if you're a, a software engineer, you haven't learned about PLCs in most colleges. Almost all of our industrial equipment runs on PLC code. So who's going to teach them that? And all of our mechanical engineers need to be able to communicate through CAD. Some of them have had one or two classes, but none of them know geometric dimensioning and tolerancing. And we live in a worldwide market. Our stuff goes overseas all the time. So if we're not using GDMT, we don't know what parts we're getting. So there's this whole list of technical things that, yeah, I got to learn those once I get out. So how do you, how do you get started on that, right? Well, that's a great point, right? Because what you learn in school, as you said, is not necessarily what you're going to use, at least not all of it, uh, or, or not the same elements of it in uh, in industry. What, what can you share about the reality of day-to-day -day life as an engineer that um, either you didn't expect or, or maybe just that, that uh, those considering a career in engineering should be aware of? All right. So that decision that we talked about where folks will leave the tools in the toolbox and they'll go off and decide not that they've gotten their engineering degree and now they're going to become managers. So managers and engineers, managers that have engineering degrees don't often do management but they still need to know what they learned. So some of the good ones will keep pulling out their tools, but others won't. But what you'll find is those folks now need to learn a really intense set of skills on how to manage people. And I'm not talking about managing the people underneath you. I'm talking about managing your peers and managing your management, managing expectations, understanding things like uh, a business plan and why it's important to understand that this is going to pay us back even if the whiz bang system works, if it doesn't pay us back, we're, we're, we're not going to build it, right? That's my biggest failure. It was one of those things. So, so I think you have to remember that it's not just technical. The other set of skills is this whole emotional um, intelligence or this ability to manage and deal with other people, communicate, um, talk, stand in front of people and give a speech all these real soft skills that engineers usually aren't very comfortable with out of school. And and where do you go to learn those soft skills? I mean, part of it probably is from mentors, right? Like yourself, you had your mentors. Now you act as a mentor. Um, outside of mentors, are, are there other tools or strategies that you found to be useful in developing those soft skills? I like books because, and I listen to a lot of audible books on, on my phone or whatever. I, I'm constantly listening to different ways and things that people think. Things like presence, executive presence. What is that? I'm, I'm curious. I don't understand. Or how, how does how does emotional what does emotional intelligence even mean? And how do you deal with other people? And and why why is uh, why is diversity really important? A mental diversity is incredibly important. If you don't get people with very different ideas in the room you're never going to get very different new ideas. You're only going to get what you've always gotten. So to learn about these things, the only way I've found is books. So I read a lot of books about how things get done. I, I echo that. I love to read books. And, and more recently, uh, I've been doing more listening to books than actually reading the books. Here's my thing with listening books, and maybe you have a solution for this. Um, what I love about reading the book is I can highlight it and then it's easy, especially in digital form to go back and find those highlighted sections and I can read through them again. I'll often uh, open a book that I had read, you know, a year ago or two years ago and just th read through the highlights that I had done. Um, but it takes a long time, right? For me anyway, to read a book versus listening. It takes a lot less time so you can get through a lot more content 
but I have not found any good way to, you know, uh, quote unquote, highlight sections in the book. Is that something that you've ever experienced? Well, I've been through the thought process. I haven't solved it. My, my solution is because it's so fast to read the books in audio, I listen to them over and over again and have ah. a good memory. So things stick in my head if I listen to them more than once or twice. So I take those books and they're all in my phone and I'm constantly dialing up another one. Oh, that habits book was really great, right? There's different books that will guide me on something I feel like I'm missing right now. Yeah, that, that's a good approach. That makes sense. Okay, speaking to the, the technical aspect of things, what are a few technical areas or, or skill sets that you feel uh, younger engineers in particular, but maybe even more seasoned engineers, sometimes lack that, that should be strengthened to realize you know, one's full potential as an engineer? Right now in engineering, there, there's this whole digital movement happening where uh, finite element analysis is really moving to the next level. 510K builds and things for the FDA are being done through digital means. They're not always done through physical testing. So with sufficiently skilled people running finite element analysis, you can achieve experimentation that you can actually turn in and say, this is actually done. So you still have to validate your model. Some parts of the model will need to be proven that they work to show that that works. But if you can run finite element analysis. ANSYS is one. There's ComSol. There, there's a, a number of good ones. Um, if you can do that, what it requires is it requires a really solid understanding of those tools from your toolbox when you were in college. In fact, that's why when I get a young person as an engineer, I immediately start them on finite element analysis because they still remember all of the equations and all of the methods behind the madness that is FEA, right? It's not just a model, right? It's what's happening and they can do that. So that that's one thing, get them into FEA. Uh, the next thing is CAD. CAD is not a CAD computer assisted design, you know, SolidWorks, Inventor, Pro-E. Those things used to be um, a specific tool that would carry you through your career and you would design things on that, and that would make you a great engineer. Now they're a communication tool. If you can't run CAD, you can't communicate your ideas quickly. How are you going to show them what you mean? Are you going to sketch it on the board? Maybe you can if you're a great sketch artist, but you might find that if you can use CAD, you can show things quickly and better. People will be impressed with what you can show them as well. Um, statistics. This is another area that's right now, right? This is something that when I took college, I hated statistics. I still don't like it. I still find it to be magical, and I, and I really <laughs> But I have friends that are experts in statistics, and the things that they can do with statistics, they're amazing. I mean, recently in a, on, a, on a job, I was able to change the variation that I was seeing in, in a load cell input remarkably i was able to get you know 400 percent improvement by oversampling and reusing you know using the some of the means or i don't even remember the statistics that did it but i can network with people that can tell me how to use that and by doing it we were able to solidify it without having to increase the capability of the load cell so don't run away from statistics i think statistics is probably a tool that's here to stay uh, do you use SolidWorks? Is that your, your CAD program? Yeah, that's my preference. I've used a lot of CAD softwares, but that's the one I use now. In terms of FEA, um, you mentioned getting young engineers involved with that. I'm assuming that you yourself do some FEA. Uh, do, you, do you like using the SolidWorks simulation package, or do you just use ANSYS? I use ANSYS because when I use SolidWorks, I'm always frustrated that I can't manage the... the uh, I can't manage the details as closely as I want and the results are not scaled. So things look wrong. Mm. And this is kind of a key point when, when you're done with a project, it often matters as much how well it looks as it does how well it functions. So if I do work in FEA and I can show that it deforms a little bit, then people get it. But when I show them, a little bit of deformation in SolidWorks, it looks like a lot of deformation. They don't get it. 
So I'm dealing with people that don't use FEA and I have to use that tool to show them. So how it looks and what it conveys is as important as how accurate it is. Got it. That makes sense. Okay. Uh, something that you mentioned in your LinkedIn description is that all equipment and systems follow the same physics and creation of any system is possible through application of these common laws. Can you uh, expound on that just a little bit more? Okay. So when I worked at, uh, I worked initially at Millican making carpets, broad loom carpets. Uh, Thermo was heavily utilized there. We did something called cloud point control. By using a, a, a thermocouple, you could control where the cloud was in a steamer so that you could manage your carpet without causing the dyes to become um, drab. So I figured out how back then I was pulling out my tools and I, and I figured out, well, gosh, we can, we, can use, we can use thermo to figure out where to put this, right? So then when I moved to BIC, I thought, well, gosh, this is going to be totally different. No. It's the same exact thing. They're all the same concepts. You, and then when I was interviewed from BIC to come to uh, J&J, the, question that, the key question that I was asked, well, what makes you think you can design contact lens equipment? And my response was, well, they're all just machines. If you know what you want them to do, they follow the same rules. So one of the rules is exact constraint design. If you can manage to know where everything is by design, then there isn't any adjustment. It works well all the time. Once it works, it can't be changed to not work. There isn't any adjustment. So things like exact constraint design or application of the tools like Thermo that you got out of college, those things apply. It doesn't matter whether it's making whipped cream, carpet, pens, or insertion systems. It doesn't matter. It's all the same, right? Physics doesn't change based on the project. It's your ability and your flexibility on how you can apply the things that you see and use. Well said. All right. Well, I'm going to take just a really short break here and share with our listeners that testfixturedesign.com is where you can learn more about my company, Pipeline Design and Engineering, and how we help men, uh, medical device engineering teams who need turnkey custom test fixtures or automated equipment. Uh, to assemble, inspect, characterize, or perform verification or validation testing on their devices. We're speaking with Les Voss today, who is a principal engineer at Johnson & Johnson Vision Care. Uh, Les, you spent pretty much your entire career developing new machines and equipment. If you had to share a checklist with um, uh, maybe a, a young engineering team that that listed the top three things to pay attention to when doing machine design work, what would be on that list? Well, I guess I just let the cat out of the bag. The number one most important thing is exact constraint design. So this is a hard one for people to get, but what it means is everything is specified exactly where it needs to be, but not over-specified. So for example, if I want to locate two plates together, I'll use one pin and one slot with a pin in it so that one of them gives me XY location and the other one gives me theta about that XY. So if you extrapolate that into everything you design, what happens is everything by design is where your tolerances say it will be. And if you need an adjustment point, you design that in too. And everyone knows this is my adjustment point. And what happens with that kind of equipment is it always works. Once it works, it can't not work. It has to always work. If it fails to work, then something's broken or somebody's moved one of your constraints. So I usually spend the first hour drawing sketches and showing people what exact constraint design is. There's a book on it. Uh, the book's a little difficult to read, but it is a, it does convey the concept. Do you recall the name of the book? Exact Constraint Design. Okay, just like it sounds. All right. Uh, I, I actually have not heard that uh, that exact term before, but that sounds like a really interesting, well, maybe the read is not so interesting, but the concept. It's a small book, sounds... but it's very difficult to read. But Oh, that, that's encouraging, a small yeah. book. Okay. I can get through a small, difficult book. Yeah, it's really important. <laughs> I, hand it out. Okay. I don't think it gets often read. It doesn't look very earmarked when I get it back. 
Yeah. So I, I guess that's the first thing. Okay. The second thing is don't try to do it all yourself because you're not going to know everything about it. So I spend as much time before I start designing as I trying to understand it as I do afterwards, as after I have a concept, developing it is actually short. But what takes the time is finding the people that really understand what what's going on, talking to them at length, finding out what they think the watchouts are, how they would do it, getting some ideas. And then I follow that, like I said, the rabbit hole down of inner and uh, make notes of things I need to know more about. Like a system I recently developed needed a uh, multi-axis load cell feedback. I've never done anything like that before, but turns out that people like uh, the, the surgical robots and all of that, those guys do a lot of that. So by going in there and reading all about surgical robots, I was able to develop an instrument that used those techniques. I didn't have to figure out all of that. It's already there. And when you say it's already there, are you referring to like academic papers that you found, you know, in some journal or, or are you interviewing people that have direct experience with those applications or, or something else altogether? Well, if it's a local thing and there are people to interview, that's where I always start. I find that the technicians that run the equipment, like if you're working on equipment that's there and you want to improve it, talk to the technicians. They will almost always feed you every answer you need because you're making their life better. So all you need to do is once you get their confidence that you're actually going to do what you say, those folks will feed you. So if it's on equipment that's there, go to the people that know it, the people that fix it. And then if it's not that, if it's something totally outside your zone, like this last thing I mentioned, the, the load cell system, I started doing internet searches and I found out, oh, the DaVinci robot, wow, that has this kind of thing in it. What do I, how can I learn about that? There's a lot of articles about how that works. Mm, okay. And then I found out who makes the parts for them. And I call them up and I tell them what I'm doing and where I work and tell them, ask them if they can help me. And almost always they're happy to sell me something. So <laughs> <laughs> that's a great approach. Um, okay. A anything else there? If, if you're through, that's fine. I don't necessarily need three, but if you had anything else in mind, I don't want to cut you off. I, I think those are probably two key points. If we could get those okay. started, you'd be in good shape. Excellent. Um, you you started to talk about this briefly earlier. Um, can can you share a major success and a major failure that you had or, or the teams that you've been a part of have had uh, over the years and, and what you and, and all of us can learn from those experiences? Okay. So I mentioned uh, Venturi, uh, Venturi cooling. There's a process that we had used where we were using, a, I think it was a Vacon type device where it was using the Venturi effect and ideal gas law to create cooling. So you'd use compressed air and it converts it to cold air. It's pretty inefficient, but it works well if you just need spot cooling. And we were doing that on our product. Well, then a new product came and we needed very cold air. And we were literally buying an entire compressor, a plant compressor, huge, huge, incredibly large air, expensive. We had to build new roads into our plant in Ireland and we were wow. them in big compressors in order to use the Venturi effect in the array size that we were running on our new product lines. And it was the only way because we were just scaling up. No one had stopped to think, well, what are we doing? Well, when that started happening, there was a lot of disgruntled kind of, well, why are we doing it that way? And so then the research starts and you start thinking about it. And then you ask, well, why are we using a Venturi cooling effect? That's not how we make cold gas. And then you figure <laughs> out, well, gee whiz, look, we make liquid nitrogen and it's all done through compression. So why don't we just do that? And the end result was, on every line that ran this new product and on many, many lines now, on, I don't know, many lines, uh, we no longer have high air compressor usage, high electric usage. We have these very cleverly designed uh, vacuum uh, and reflective heat. They don't transfer heat tubing. So we were able to remotely locate these things. We called them the Mr. Freeze and the Mr. Freeze 2. Mr. Freeze 2 is 
incredibly cold. It can literally get down to liquid CO2 levels. So very, very fun project resulted in big wins for the company. So if you're going to ask about that, though, the next question is, what's the big failure? So as I'm thinking across my career and I'm trying to understand what is the failure? The failure isn't always a project that failed. So we did a project a few years ago, and it was maybe the most difficult project I've ever done. And it was using interferometry in a high vibration environment. And I don't really want to go. Interferometry is something that's kind of a niche optics kind of thing. And it's how you can measure lenses to make sure that they are what you think they are. Uh, they don't, they usually require two points of measurement. And if you use two points, you have to have a time variable. Therefore, it becomes vibration sensitive. Anyway, the interferometry people at the University of Arizona told us we couldn't do it. It wasn't possible. So we did it and it worked the first time, very first time. So it felt like we had this huge victory. Well, while the engineers had been working away and we'd been nailing down all these wins, management had decided that what we were doing with this system was going to be called parametric release. We were going to be able to release product online after manufacturing because straight without going through quality control because we were going to measure online and we could measure online, but there was a lot happening in between that measurement and the final product out the door. So it turned out that it couldn't pay value if you were measuring the quality in the middle of the line and then wanted to release it at the end, there was too many things that you would have to validate and prove didn't change. So the value, the business model, the the plan, it wouldn't support the cost of the unit. So this fantastic system, you get maybe in your career, you get one or two things that the first time you turn them on, they work. So this one, the first time we turned it on, it worked the hardest thing ever. And then Management said, sorry, create it up because the business case. Oh, no. Support <laughs> doing that must have been so painful. It's horribly painful. And it's not only painful, but it, it, it's career damaging because you do a year or two of work on something that's really supposed to provide results for the business. And in the end, it doesn't provide results. And it doesn't matter whether it failed for technical reasons or business reasons. So. Failure doesn't always happen because you didn't do the technical things right. Sometimes it's because you weren't communicating with management or management didn't understand what you were telling them. So that's an interesting point. Is the failure just on the side of management or do we say that the failure is on the side of engineering as well for not understanding the business case? Because it, uh, the business case isn't really the responsibility of the, the engineering team. You're right. It isn't. But I heard them. As we were going along, I heard them saying parametric release. And every time I heard that, it was like nails on a chalkboard. I I didn't ever think it was going to be possible to do that. But I never went and showed them why it wasn't possible. They, My my manager at the time, he, he's very, very bright. He understands engineering. He has a master's degree in engineering himself. He gets it. So he's the one that finally sat down and did the math, the money math to figure out what's the business case here. And despite everyone wanting to use this whiz-bang, super cool new system that did what never been done before, it's going to cost you money and it's not going to pay you back. It's a failure. Yeah. So I I think it was my failure as much as it was management's failure. I should have done that. Uh, it's it's a horrible experience, but it's a terrific experience at the same time. Thank you for being vulnerable and and sharing that with everyone. It happened. (laughs) Yeah. Well, um, let's see. Uh, t- tell me about this this FPX system that you use, or flawless project execution. That was another term that that I was not familiar with. Can you give us just a brief summary of what that is? Sure. J and J has actually developed that internally. Oh, That's okay. Why you've not heard of it? I, there are a lot of uh, project management kinds of things out there. And J&J borrowed some of those from it. But what flawless project management execution really means is 
you're communicating all the time. If you had to boil it all down, what it means is I'm meeting with my team regularly, the technical team, and I'm meeting with my stakeholders, and I've got definitions of what those stakeholders are accountable for, and I know what I need to communicate to them, and I've got definitions of who's my project sponsor. So if I run into trouble, this is usually somebody at a more executive level that can manage to move things and communicate things that maybe an engineer isn't going to be as good at communicating. So I can always go to my project sponsor. So there's there's just a designed-in method of how to interact with the key people on a key project. And it just makes everything go so much smoother because everyone's engaged. They all align at the beginning on what the objectives are. You have a kickoff meeting where everyone says, this is what done looks like. This is what's included. This is what's not included. We're not going to do these things. And this is what the final state looks like. We'll know you're successful when we've achieved these objectives. And all of that, even if it takes eight or 10 hours of discussion, is agreed on in a room with the stakeholders and the project leaders before it starts. So when you get to the end, you know you're done. You've won. You've, you've achieved what you set out to achieve. It, it really all comes down to communication. It's, it's astounding that I, I hear that same comment echoed over and over by so many different engineers that I've talked with. What, what are you know, some of the most important skills to develop in engineering? And communication is just probably the top one that I've heard over and over. We had a project recently. It was, it was, probably, it was probably our biggest fail ever as a company. And it came down to not having a robust, thorough set of project requirements at the beginning and then not communicating well, both internally and with our customer as the project went on. And, and it was it was just a, a colossal disaster um, in the end. And it, it just came down to poor communication, I think. Um, uh Something uh, actually, before I ask the next next question, c- can you can you share without you know disclosing any confidential aspects of the system that JNJ has designed? Can you share any of the kind of granular tools in this this flawless uh, project execution system that facilitates that uh, that conversation, that communication between the team? There there are standard um, there's the standard PowerPoint slash uh, Excel sheet that lists out the different tools that need to be populated. And it's very concise on how you need to define your goals and objectives. It's not, it doesn't allow you to be wishy-washy. You have to very specifically say, this is what will be accomplished and when and how and at what cost. And this is what is not included. And and then deleting, delineating all of those out and also resources, right? How many times do you get into a project knowing that you can succeed if you have the right people, but you can't get the right people. So at the beginning, the stakeholders must include the managers that are, that have those people reporting to them. Those folks actually become uh, bound by their yearly goals and objectives on your FPX team. So if they fail to contribute to your team properly, you're going to be able to have feedback on their goal, yearly goals and objectives. It's all tied together. It's very intermingled. There's no, nobody can skate. It's, it's got to happen. And then there, there's weekly meetings. Every week, meeting happens on Tuesday. On Thursday, the notes have to be out. The following Tuesday, you, you're going through the list and you're checking what has everybody done. Everybody lists what they're going to do. It's all detailed out. It's very, very intensive in the paperwork at the beginning. But the result is the work at the end is much less. It's it's really interesting listening to, uh, listening to you talk about this because these things, they sound pretty basic, right? I mean, it's taking notes. It's making a list. It's clearly defining things. At the same time, it's so easy to not do those things. Uh, I guess it's just human nature. It's the easy part, right? Yeah, right. But it's not the easy part. It really, (laughs) but it's not getting everybody aligned and getting them together. That's, that's hard. It's not the fun part, which makes it not easy. Maybe that's a fair point. We're rushing to get to the fun part. We all like the creative part. Maybe we all. Yeah. 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 
Something else I struggle with managing projects is understanding how far through a project we actually are. You know, it's easy to look at a budget and say, okay, we've used 50% of this budget, just looking at the hours and expenses associated with the project to date. For me anyway, it's much more difficult to say, okay, we've used 50% of the budget. Are we actually 50% done with the project? And uh, the, the only way that I've been able to, with some degree of accuracy, measure that is to list out all the tasks that are remaining that I think we still need to do, assign you know an hour amount, a dollar amount to all of those tasks, and then add it all up and compare it with how much of the budget we've actually used. And, and if they match, great. And if they don't, okay, we, we need, know we need to make some, uh, some changes. But that, that process can take a while. And we don't always know what tasks are uh, remaining to do still, right? Especially in an R&D environment, like you're kind of guessing on what you think you might still need to do. What, what have been your experiences with, with managing that process and understanding what percent complete are we actually with this, this project? So when we do flawless project execution, FPX, it works much, much better if it's not an R&D project. Because mm. When it's not an R&D project, when, you, when you're doing something like we're moving this product that's running well here over to this new equipment that's going to run there, we know all of the things that are necessary to do it. So when we do that, we can lay out milestones. If by this date we've achieved this much, then we know that it's right. We can hit the big picture items, the top peaks. We got those, then we we can fill in the details. We know that we're going to make the timeline. On an R and D project, FPX seems to fall a little short, and and that's one of the things. The feedback to the FPX team is, how do we do better on on an R and D project? Because often you don't know what you don't know until you get there. Yeah, it can cause a great delay. And how do you quote kind of that kind of a job, right? Exactly. So I, I face that in my, my like my yearly deliverables. How do I how do I establish where I'm going to be when it's a completely new thing that no one's ever done before, right? So I think there's not a good answer for that right now. I don't have well that for that makes me feel a little bit better at least that that uh, here you are with all your decades of experience and, and you don't have a great answer for it either. <laughs> All right. Well, you've uh, you've held leadership and managerial roles throughout your con- career. Let's go back to that that checklist that we talked about earlier for engineering teams, and, and pretend this time it's for a group of, of budding project managers or leaders. What what goes on that checklist this time? So now they're project managers. They don't want to be technical engineers. They want to be project managers. Right. So I'm mentoring uh, an engineer now who is that kind of an engineer. And the funny thing that she too wants to leave behind her tools, but I'm pushing her because a project manager needs to understand what happens and what needs to happen. And those are the tools that you got in college, whether or not you know they're valuable, they're incredibly valuable. So intend to pull them out. So then the next thing is become the expert. So in this particular job, it's a plating. It's a new type of diamond-like carbon isn't really new, but it's a new type for us. Diamond-like carbon is an awesome coating process that makes things very slick and uh, corrosion resistant. It's not very expensive. It's extremely good for injection molding, different wear things. Anyway, no one knows how to do it in the company. Well, this, this young lady's frustrated because nobody knows how to do it. Well, guess what? She's going to be the expert. T- take take that leadership role and decide. With your skills getting through engineering school, you really don't think that you're capable of understanding how to do plating? Forget about it. You you know you can do that. It's not that much research. There's a few weeks at most. Maybe not even that. Maybe it's a week. Spend the time and become the expert. You'll be the expert for the rest of your career. Isn't it worth it? So so the project managers and leaders that I respect most, those folks take the time to actually understand the projects and the technical background of the things that they're leading so that they can call BS on somebody that isn't doing their work. You can't tell if a guy's not doing his work if you're not aware of what needs to be done. So dig in. 
So you're saying uh, don't just manage budget and schedule. Understand the technical fundamentals of what it is you're doing so that you can, not, not that you're trying to catch people, but you understand when something's going off the rails from a technical, technical standpoint. We had a failure because uh, the print was bad. The print wasn't properly specified. That was one of the failures. So is it the project manager's fault that the print was bad? No. But when the print is bad and the project manager then fails, who's accountable? The project manager. So it was worth her time to sit and learn a little bit about GD&T so that she could at least make sure that the basic datum structure was there and that she understood what it meant. And maybe she'll take the class now. I don't think there's useless knowledge. I really don't. I think that if you can stand it, learn what you need to learn to be an expert where you can. From that standpoint, it almost sounds like you're describing the project manager as, as kind of the uh, engineering analog to a radiologist, right? Someone that, that kind of knows all the different parts of the body and how they work together. Right, right. They need to. They don't need to know all the details. She's not going to need to draw the drawing. She's not going to need to use SolidWorks. Probably not. Probably never will. Yeah. It might help her if she could at least see the prints. Yeah. Okay. Last, last question for you. What are one or two of the biggest challenges that you face at work? I am much, much better at technical parts of work and achieving whatever. So I'm a, I'm a solution guy. I'm not a question guy. If a guy has a question, a good question guy can ask you something that really will change the way the world works. If they, they will say things, if only that could be this way, that's a great question guy because they, they might see something that is just intrinsically better. I'm a, I'm a solution guy. When somebody says that to me, I'm really good at finding an answer so I can solve that problem. I need a good question guy to work with me as, as a solution guy. Ideally, that question guys my manager, because if a manager can ask me those things, then I can go ahead and succeed with management as well. What I'm finding is the more difficult of the questions I can answer, the more difficult it is to find somebody to ask a reasonable question, right? So, for example, the online measurement system most difficult thing I've ever done. When we got done, it wasn't needed. The next project I did was a similar project, never been done. I did it. But when I was done, it wasn't used. So the point is, is despite having these FPX meetings where people agree that when you're done with this, this is going to be value added, and this is going to change the business, you can't be successful if the projects you do really don't change the business. Mm. So finding the right people to lean on to guide you to the right projects, that's maybe the most difficult part of my job. Interesting. So do you, uh, I don't know how it works at JNJ, but um, do you, are you given different options? So you could work on project A, B, and C, and it's left to you to decide which one you want to work on? Sometimes they're specifically assigned. Those those are good because now you're not on the hook when it doesn't have a, a win, right? But often you're engaged with the, the group's success. The group, for example, on the online measurement system, the, the group was engaged in trying to understand real-time quality issues as they occurred on the line. So to solve for that, finding best, best methods to measure things online was part of a brainstorm meeting that I was in. Well, now the manager gets behind that idea, and so it's as much my idea as it is his idea. A lot of the things that I make start out as a small idea, and they grow into a very big or complicated solution. So I become very engaged and responsible for the business success, not just the project success. Yeah, which is all in a way, it's it's almost too bad, right? Because you kind of have to temper your your passion for creating something great with the understanding that I don't want to be associated with a, a failed project because that could you know m- might hurt my career. Um, and it seems like that could almost 
I don't know, stifle creativity or or future breakthroughs in, in technology and products for the company. Yeah, it, it, it's, it slows us down, right? Because you have engineers now focusing in an area that they're not excellent. You want to focus in the areas where that was a key point I learned a few years ago. Don't try to fill in your gaps. Everyone has gaps. Fit, rather, take the, your highlights, amplify those, become phenomenal, the best at your highlights. Let the gaps kind of be filled by your peers and move on. As long as you can get along with those gaps, get along. Yeah, if, if I'm really strong technically, but don't have great, you know, soft skills, call it, um, I could spend a lot of time trying to improve my soft skills, but that's time I can't spend trying to make my technical skills even better. So at the end of the day, I end up being still, you know, pretty good technically, but just kind of maybe I've gone from really poor to mediocre soft skills. And overall, I'm still just pretty good where if I had focused all that time on improving my technical skills, I could be a rock star, superstar technically and forget about the soft skills. Let someone else handle that. That's exactly it. Now just find somebody that can fill those gaps. That's that's the hard bit, right? I right. Find the yes. manager or the person, the partner that will help you with those gaps. The complementary skill sets. I hear you. Yeah. All right. Well, Les, thank you so much for your time today. You've just you shared a wealth of knowledge, and I, I can I can feel all the experience that you've had and all that hard earned knowledge. So thank you so much for that. Um, if people want to get a hold of you, what what's the best way for them to do that? I have a LinkedIn page. I think that's probably the best way uh, okay. to contact me through InMail on LinkedIn. Uh, I'd like to give out my email, but I think I'll hold that and you can read. <laughs> Fair I, enough. I would Fair like enough. to hear from folks because I, I mentor a lot of people. I work with the, uh, the youth leadership development program and uh, different ways to try to help folks get into uh, the science and technology areas. And I do like to mentor. I, I think we need more engineers. Engineers make the world a better place. Well, there you go, dear listeners. You want uh, you want to mentor. This is the guy. <laughs> All right. Well, Les, thank you again uh, so much for spending some time for for taking the time out of your busy day. Okay. Thank you, Aaron. It's good meeting with you. I'm Aaron Moncur, founder of Pipeline Design and Engineering. If you liked what you heard today, please leave us a positive review. It really helps other people find the show. To learn how your engineering team can leverage our team's expertise in developing turnkey custom test fixtures, automated equipment, and product design, visit us at testfixturedesign.com. Thanks for listening.